as we continue uh, looking at uh, the book of Romans chapter 5 through 8. And this can be found on page 4. The title of this sermon is Rejoicing in Suffering with a question mark. This is Paul speaking. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The word of the Lord. I enjoy uh, good um, writers and reading, and one of my favorite uh, authors is a guy named G.K. Chesterton, and uh, he's a masterful turn of a phrase of using language uh, t- uh, to uh, call out things and clever quips and so on, and so I every now and then enjoy uh, looking at a list of oxymorons that I have. Uh, these are not people who are clean. No, they are statements that are apparent opposites. So, for instance, when someone looks at you and says, you need to act naturally, uh, that's an oxymoron. You shouldn't have to act naturally. You should simply be naturally, right? Or does ever, anyone come to you and say, oh, well, that's the same difference. That's another oxymoron. Same difference doesn't mean uh, anything. Maybe you listen to soft rock. A soft rock is an oxymoron. This one may be a little bit off color, but uh, clever and on the head. Have you ever been called a butthead? (laughs) Oxymoron, certainly. Uh, Let's continue. Perhaps you wear uh, tight slacks, or you've ever been called pretty ugly. And of course, uh, my favorite, Microsoft Works, uh, coming from an Apple guy. Microsoft works. Little jab at the Microsoft people. Uh, grumble, grumble, grumble. Um, that, uh, why do I talk about oxymorons? Because the words rejoice and suffering don't seem to go together, do they? One is not supposed to rejoice in suffering. One is supposed to lament suffering. Uh, and yet the scripture tells us that we rejoice in our sufferings. Doesn't make any sense. The world certainly doesn't believe in these things. In fact, this is one of the big uh, detractors for people who believe in, uh, in God, or at least give an excuse. There's suffering in the world. And there, if there was a perfect God, he wouldn't allow suffering. Therefore, there is no God. Or why do you believe in God who allows you to suffer? We tend to also uh, uh, disavow this oxymoron of rejoicing and suffering. We tend to divide our past into good things to remember with gratitude and painful things to accept or rather to forget. Typically, when we look at hardship, we see it as an obstacle. We think we should be healthy and good-looking and free of discomfort, and we consider suffering as annoying at best and meaningless at worst. And we strive to get rid of our pains in whatever way we can. If we're in the mount, in the valley, we want to get out of it as quick as possible up into the mountaintop and to sweep these pains and sufferings under the rug. But Paul, quite different than these mentalities, says that we are to rejoice in suffering. 
And this word rejoice, as we know, is actually to say to boast in suffering, to, to have confidence in suffering. What could he be meaning? Doesn't make any sense. Or does it? Christianity turns everything on its head, doesn't it? It makes up and down, uh, up be down and down be up. And so we can boast in suffering. I think this is probably that which distinguishes and makes Christianity what really is real compared to everything else because it's in suffering that you really discover what is true. You really discover who God is. You really discover who you are. And without going to that place of suffering, without going to that place of darkness and seeing the God who is, you will never truly know him. I have been able to experience and believe and agree with Paul that we do rejoice in suffering. We can boast in suffering. And so we really, if we're going to understand what it means to be a Christian, need to unpack and process this. The bottom line is really this, that you can rejoice in suffering because God has not abandoned you. On the contrary, you will find that the love of God is closer to you in suffering than anywhere else and any time else. So we're going to look at a couple of aspects as we unpack this, unpack this concept of rejoicing and suffering. Number one, we have to know the purpose of suffering. Why does God allow it to happen? What's the point of it? If we don't know what it's there for, we can never understand what God's doing in it. We need to know the purpose of suffering. And then we need to know the pattern of suffering. We actually have been given the playbook, if you will, of what God is doing in suffering in this passage right here. We have to understand the pattern of what God is doing in suffering. And finally, we can embrace the truth that we can know God's love in a special way in suffering. Suffering is where we discover the height and intensity of the love of God. So let's begin on our odyssey of understanding this concept rejoicing and suffering. Number one, we have to know the purpose of suffering. Remember, uh, Romans 5 through 8 is sort of a summation and moving into the so what about what has been talked about in Romans 1 through 4. And Romans 1 through 4 has been introducing the truth that a righteousness apart from our actions has been created, has been produced in Jesus Christ. That rather than trusting in our own works, which will never be enough to be made right with God, we can embrace and receive his righteousness to our own record. We can be made righteous before God because of what Christ has done rather than what we have done. And as Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified with faith, we have peace with God. Not only that, but we rejoice, we boast in the hope or the certainty of the glory of God that is going to be revealed in us. And then Paul utters these cryptic words, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. This not only that tells us a couple of things. The first is he's drawing a comparison between rejoicing in the glory of God and rejoicing in sufferings. He's at a minimum making them equal. As we can boast in the coming glory of God, we can also, with a minimum of equality, boast in our sufferings, 
Indeed, it could even be argued that he's saying that we can even more boast in our sufferings. So that's quite a step that Paul is saying here. We certainly get the cheering in Romans 5, 1 and 2, but there's a bit of a murmuring or perplexing in Romans 5, 3 and 4. He says not only, but we rejoice or boast in our sufferings. Now many of us are familiar with sufferings. We may be going through them right now, but the word suffering, as I looked it up, here's some ways to describe suffering. Uh, Affliction, anguish, burdens or persecutions, tribulation or trouble. Indeed, the, the literal translation would be pressure. The pressure that you experience in the midst of these things. And so Paul is saying we can rejoice or boast in our burdens, our persecutions, our tribulations, our afflictions. And notice he doesn't say we can uh, glory or boast despite our sufferings. Or we can glory or boast about our sufferings. He's not saying that we are supposed to be cheering and boasting of the fact that we have cancer. Or that we've just been fired or we've lost a loved one. That's, that's crazy. He's not saying that. But he is saying that we can boast in our sufferings. In the midst of, directly related to, what is happening to us. We can boast in the difficulty that we are experiencing. Now we would laugh at Paul if we hadn't seen this demonstrated in his life and in the life of the disciples, right? Remember in the book of Acts where Paul is in prison, surrounded by uh, squads of soldiers, 16 soldiers, keeping him on constant watch, and yet what are they doing? They're singing hymns and rejoicing to God in the midst of their difficulty. Or the disciples, as they are arrested for preaching Christ in Jerusalem, they are whipped and told not to preach Christ again or else, and they leave rejoicing that they are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That doesn't make sense. They should leave quietly or whimpering or getting out of town, and yet there is a joy in these people that is unspeakable. Indeed, the scriptures tell us that Jesus, who the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Notice his joy wasn't in being crucified, but in the midst of this process, there was a joy set before him. How is it that we can rejoice in suffering? Paul goes on with this key word, and this key word is knowing. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and so on and so on. In other words, we can know that God is doing something. Indeed, we can see what he is about in the midst of this suffering. This is not a random occurrence, whatever is happening to me. We know, looking at the scriptures, that God is over all things. 
And God says to those that are his people that not a hair can fall from your head without me allowing it. There's no such thing as random suffering. God has a plan in the midst of everything that's going on. There isn't anything in my life that I could say, oh, God didn't want this to happen. God didn't allow this to happen. This wasn't part of God's plan. Are you saying to me that God is the author of evil? No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying God is in control of everything. And God certainly allows things that he hates to accomplish things that he loves. The cross is the paramount example of that. So every little thing that's happening in my life is foreordained and foreplanned by God for my benefit. We know, as Ken Ken says, in all things God works for the good. Every single thing God is doing something. It's a tapestry that God is weaving. And so we know that suffering has a purpose. That overall purpose of what God is doing in my life is this. For those God foreknew, this is Romans 8, 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Because you are sons and daughters, you who believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, he has made you his child. And he is molding you and shaping you into the likeness of the one who you were patterned after, Jesus Christ. He is conforming us, if you will. Christ said, behold, I'm making all things new. I don't know if you knew that when you came to Christ. Maybe you were sold a bill of goods that people, uh, if you followed Jesus, your life was going to be great and your spouse was going to look Uh, more handsome or more beautiful, and your paycheck was going to increase. Those people lied to you. I'm sorry, they did. That's not what Christianity is about. Anyone who says that, oh yeah, there's not supposed to be trouble in Christianity, didn't read the scriptures. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, right? But my peace I leave with you. And so some of us, we heard the gospel the true gospel, we received Christ and followed him and then things started to go wrong. Somehow we missed the connection, right? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Imagine yourself as a living house and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. From the beginning, as we are born into Christ, he begins to mold us and shape us, and suffering is the tool. This was how Jesus lived his life, didn't he? Hebrews 5, 7 puts it this way. 
During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What does it mean that the Son of God learned obedience through what he suffered? He had to live as a man. Jesus experienced a very difficult and painful life. His father died before, as far as we can tell, before he was fully grown. He experienced the death of a loved one. He grew up being ostracized by his peers because he was born out of wedlock. That meant something back then. He died on a cross. He had to continue to trust God and obey him in the midst of that suffering. And that actually was the process of his perfection. With the final being dying on a cross and once being made perfect, he became the source of salvation for us. I love those guys on the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes, you know, after Christ has been crucified and these guys are walking glumly on the way to Emmaus and, uh, uh, and, uh, and Jesus comes and walks along them alongside them, but they don't recognize him. And they're lamenting, and Jesus asked them, what are you, what are you talking about? And they s- said, you know, we, we, we had hoped that he was the one, that he was the prophet, but then our leaders crucified him. And, and then we heard reports that, that he had risen, but they don't really believe it. They're flummoxed. And Jesus, in the breaking of bread, shows them who he is. And he says, oh, foolish ones. Didn't you know that the Christ had to suffer and then enter his glory? They didn't see because they didn't know the plan. God's priority is making you and I into Christ. And do you think that that can happen without us experiencing and entering into a little bit of suffering ourselves? We like easy victories, growth without crisis, healing without pain, the resurrection without the cross, but they go hand in hand. So this is what suffering does. It removes us from being the center of our lives. You know the worst thing that you can do is be the center of your own life? Have you ever met a person who they're the center of their life. It's miserable hanging out with them, isn't it? It's me, me, me. Some of us are just better at hiding it, right? It's the worst thing. We're captives to ourselves. Jesus has to free us from worshiping ourselves so we can worship the true God that we were created to. But that is a process. Remember the apostle Peter? Even if everyone else leaves... I will never leave you. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. By the end of the day, three times you're going to deny me. See, like Peter, the reality is we want to add Jesus to our life, not to replace our life with his. We want to add him to our portfolio as long as there's not any pain or suffering. But in suffering, we learn to accept that our life 
is not our own. That our story is not our own. That we are at the hands of someone who is greater than us, who has a greater plan for us than our simple cottage that we want to build. And it's suffering that drives us to the Lord. How can we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life until we've lost the way? Until we don't know what's true? And until we really see death? It's then that we see him for who he is. It's only then that we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. Lewis again, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gas and would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. Suffering removes us from being the center of our life and makes space for him to come in. Suffering also connects us with his suffering for us. I'm less likely to deny my sufferings when I learn how God uses it to mold me and draw me closer to him. I will be less likely to see my pains as interruptions to my plans and be more and more able to see them as means for God to make me ready to receive him. I let Christ live near my hurts and distractions. I have a picture of a statue. Some of you will recognize it uh, if Maestro can call it up. It's Christ the Redeemer. This is the uh, statue that stands over Rio de Janeiro that so many of us saw during the Olympics. It's an imposing statue. It's 125 feet high, 700 tons. 26 meters is the distance between his arms and it stands on this mountain above Rio. One hand, each pointing to the ends of the city. When they were creating this statue, they tried to figure out, what are, how are we going to make this continue to last through the elements on this mountaintop? Brazil has all this crazy weather. And so they decided that they would cover the outside of the statue in my-